Ladies and gentlemen, it's with my pleasure that I welcome you all back to Talking Numbers. My name is Paul Jantz, and we hope you've enjoyed the series so far for 2021 of Talking Numbers, where I chat to some great people in our accounting industry doing some great things. Now, today, I'm going to explore the topic of leadership. Um, we're going to go a little bit deeper into a few things about leadership and probably about passion and how that probably that, that passion comes into how we lead. And I've got a fantastic guest today. Today, I've got the CEO of the IPR. I've got Andrew Conway on the line. Andrew, welcome to Talking Numbers. Thanks very much, Paul. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's brilliant to have you here, mate, uh, on, a, on a bit of a wintry Melbourne morning. It is a wintry Melbourne morning, a bit melancholy as well, sort of just navigating the throes of lockdown and all that fun stuff that we've all come to experience. But look, we uh, we roll on, don't we? We do. We roll with the punches. We've got to be uh, strong, tough and build that continued resilience. Uh, well, and look, that, that that piece on resilience. I mean, it's uh, yeah. We're just chatting a little uh, in, in preparation for this about the resilience of just kids. I mean, if we think about how tough it is for us in business, I think the importance of uh, we can take a lot of strength from looking at the way in which kids have responded to these lockdowns and just rolling with you know remote learning and and all of that. It's uh, it, let's get some inspiration perhaps from the, from the youngest in the community. How true. How true. Yeah, but, um what I want to delve into a few things. I've got some really great stuff to delve into. So for all of our listeners, whether you're in the car or you're sitting down, uh, you might have a notepad with you. If you're in the car, you've got the ability to obviously rewind this and go back as well. And let's go into, first of all, some of our listeners may know, may not know a lot about the IPA. Tell me a little bit about the IPA. Yeah, look, the, uh, the Institute of Public Accountants, we've been around since 1923. So one of the three recognised professional bodies in Australia, when we say recognised, that's actually recognised in law. So the ASIC Act and the Corporations Act actually uh, lists recognised professional bodies and we're one of, the, one of those. Of course, the others being CPA Australia and Chartered Accountants Australia New Zealand. Uh, so we've got about 42,000 members and students around Australia and, and throughout the world. And our biggest market outside of Australia is actually the UK because a few years ago we amalgamated with the Institute of Financial Accountants in the UK. That's right. Uh, but, but really, Paul, I, I suppose that the way I would describe it is that um, uh, our, our principal market that we serve and have served for some time is actually the small business space and the small and medium practice segment of the market. So uh, that's where we live. That's what we love and what we're very passionate about. Yeah, brilliant. And and that's what I want to delve into. Now, uh, I know you hold the record for being the youngest CEO of a public entity appointed just 28 years of age. Um, is that something you've always wanted to do? Look, um, my wife would probably say that I've been sort of in my mid-40s for about 30 years, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm sort of one of those weird guys that uh, I, I had a fair idea of what I wanted to do in terms of um, gather up experience. And I, I did I set myself uh, set my sights on being a CEO? No, I didn't. Um, but it was one of those things that I almost fell into because of opportunities that presented themselves. So it's sort of a, a classic example. I didn't necessarily have a script written out. Um, I started my career in uh, in education, actually. So I started out in teaching um, for a short time, then went and worked in insolvency um, with Ferrier Hodgson. And then from there, uh, transitioned into the federal government and working with federal treasury. Um, and that's where I became a bit more exposed to uh, the inner workings of professional bodies and the way professional bodies work with government. And, and it was there that I built some relationships with uh, the then CEO of the 
National Institute of Accountants, which is our predecessor body. Yes. Uh, it was uh, Roger Cotton, and um, one thing led to another, and I ended up going to work uh, for Roger as his uh, as his deputy. So, um, and that yeah, that created that that chain of events, and I suppose it was a, a perfect blend of experience from you know looking at a professional body space where we do so much in education. There's so much going on in the technical space around the the, the pure accounting work. Uh, the advocacy segment as well, and then broadening out as we're looking at our global footprint as well. So it, it's, for me, I mean, I can hand on heart say I've never had a day where I've woken up going, you know, I can't do it today. I mean, every single day I find uh, there's pep in the step and some passion. It doesn't mean you don't have difficult days, but um, it's uh, I, I'm really passionate about the role the profession plays and very optimistic about our future. So so it, it's, um, yeah, it's a perfect blend for, for me and, and, and hopefully for the IPA and our members. Yeah, brilliant. And look, again, the conversations, I know we just off air, we were talking about a little bit about the, the passion side. So I'm really glad that you've sort of raised that because every time I chat to you, that's what comes through and that energy that you can see. And like you said, yeah, look, we're all going to have sort of tough days doing certain things, but the ability to get up and love what you do is fairly important, isn't it? Oh, I think it is. And as you say, you know, we all have those moments when we have a lull. But I think having an eye on what are we doing this for? And, and look, as an organisation, we spent some time a little while ago doing, you know, like many organisations did and looked at the, you know, the Simon Sinek YouTube videos, the TED Talks, yeah. finding your why. Well, we actually did that. I mean, we did that in a different sort of way. But we wanted to just really narrow down on what was it that we were doing that actually has social value? What, what was the ultimate purpose of our organisation? And, and, and we actually landed on the sense that we exist to improve the quality of life of small business owners. And I often think about this through the eyes of um, my brother and other relatives who run their own small businesses and think about, you know, the kitchen tables that are littered with the bass or accounts payable and payroll and other things that cover the kitchen table. We very viscerally see ourselves as playing a role through our members um, to reclaim the kitchen table around Australia and, and say, <laughs> you know, if we can help to improve quality of life through our work of providing good technical information at the right time to the right people, that then improves the service offering that our members can provide to their clients to make their lives easier. And I think having that constant sort of look through to what what is the actual social impact, I think is really, really important. And that, uh, that lights us all up. Yeah, look, I, I would I, I would agree 150%. I think that's becoming more relevant today. So, again, to our listeners, we spoke about purpose and the social side of it then, which is I think it's really important for as we move into this new financial year now of um, just re-looking at that and working out how important that is to your organisation. Um, Andrew, you mentioned education and you mentioned, uh, I suppose it was in line with leadership before. So I'm just going to touch on that for a sec. What 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 do you believe makes a great leader or a great CEO? I think authenticity um, is really important. Um, not getting uh, too full of yourself. I think it's it's uh, you know we've all seen examples where business leaders have been um, have fallen victim of sort of drinking their own Kool Aid and, and realizing that actually um, you know they are they are they aren't the best things in slice but so i think being that having a sense of vulnerability a sense of authenticity I mean, one of the things that i did when i became ceo as you said in your intro i was very young at uh at 28 when i was appointed the first thing i did was get everyone together and just say 
I don't actually have a secret CEO handbook. There's no guidebook about how you do this. And I, I said, uh, I'll give it my best shot. But really, um, we needed to work together and rely on the support of and knowledge of everyone around the table. And so I think being open with your vulnerabilities and weaknesses is really important that um, no one has all the answers. Um, I think also accessibility. Um, and I try and practice this, particularly with members. So um, even to this day, I mean, I've been in the role for some time now, but even to this day, um, every Monday morning, I get a list of members that were admitted to the Institute the week before, and I actually um, make contact with every one of them personally. So I'll either call them or text them. Um, and uh, when I, I'll do that and, and I'll, I'll say, you know, save my mobile number in your phone. And if, if, every, if ever you need anything uh, or you've got a recommendation for quality improvement, whatever the case might be, um, don't hesitate in reaching out. Now, to this day, um, you know, as I said, 42,000 members and students, I've only had a few members who have might have called up for some footy tips or whatever, <laughs> but some people don't generally take uh, take advantage of it. But I think I, I think it's just an example that you can't get too big for your own boots, and you, you can't try and believe your own BS, if we can say that, um, Paul. I mean, I I just think being upfront and authentic is most critical. But probably the most important aspect that the last you know, fifteen months has taught us is. Um, making sure that as a leader, you're in a position where you can absorb the fear of the people you lead. And I think that's really critical that, you know, pandemic, um, drought, bushfire, whatever the case may be, you'll always have people that are a bit fearful about um, their position and their, their state in uh, state of mind and so forth. Our role as leaders, I think, is to help identify that fear, absorb it and say, We'll work through it together and we'll try and find a path through. Um, doesn't mean you're not anxious yourself, but I think what people crave for the most and certainly during these uncertain times is 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 certainty. And so I think we've got a role to play in absorbing that fear. Yeah, well said. And I think, you know, that authenticity, it, it, it probably it's these sort of times, certainly people living in Melbourne or Victoria may be a little bit different like us as opposed to maybe people in Queensland. Um, but it does make you look in the mirror and look for that authenticity, I believe, a little bit more. And without getting carried away with, I don't know, the title, you know, you can be the CEO or the global CEO, and sometimes people get carried away with the title and ego comes into it. It's so important to leave the ego at the door and be one of the team members, like you just said. I think I think that's right. I mean, look at the, the difficult thing is, of course, that it's easy for CEOs to say that, or business owners and managers to say that. I think um, there, look, everyone has an ego. We all we all have them, and that's that's health. That's a healthy part of our DNA. That's that's just who we are. It's about how we how we check that, and I think acknowledge it. And because there will come a point in time when you might be having a group discussion with your own team. Um, and then there'll be that pause, and it's sort of like the, the the manager or leader pause, and that is the conversation's been had. People then stop talking and then say, so what's the decision? And, yes. and at the end of the day, someone needs to make a call, but it's a question of how that process is, is undertaken. And I've made plenty of mistakes in doing that where, you know, in the early days when I became CEO, I sort of just shoot from the hip because I thought that's just what a CEO had to do. <laughs> and actually, it's quite the opposite sometimes of just taking a breath that actually the, the sky is not going to fall in if you just take an extra hour or so just to consider something. Um, you don't have to be the all guns ablaze, I'll make a decision on the spot sort of person. There is a time and a place for that. But 
um, yeah, so I, I think that sense of collaboration is really important, um, but ultimately always recognising the fact that, um, you know, that the a decision will need to be made at some point and that people need to have equity in that. And I, when I first came into the role, I, I actually transitioned from, from deputy CEO to CEO. And so I went from sort of being one of the colleagues at the uh, our uh, management table to being the CEO. And what I found, I, I had it described to me by um, a, a previous chair that just said to me, every day, just put that a, a faint sort of ch chalk line on the ground that says, here's the line between the management group and the CEO. And so just every day that line might get a little darker. And and so don't go try and make it indelible from day one, but just through your, through your practice of sort of mutual respect, that line will get darker naturally. And I, and I think it's a good way to describe it, that it's an incremental thing that, yes, th there is that sense that staff will give respect to the person who is responsible for the organisation from a CEO or management point of view, but that's not a given. And you, you just got to keep building that and earning that as you go day by day. Yeah, well said, well said. And then how, how important, uh, you sort of mentioned Simon Sinek before and, you know, that was yeah. sort of the, you know, the why. How important are mentors to you? Is that something you continually have coaches, mentors, those sorts of things? Uh, not, not sort of officially. I mean, I, I sort of gather insights from around, um, uh, from different sort of pockets. And I, um, I've i been really fortunate to have some wonderful um, board chairs who have acted as mentors. And um, and given the nature of the, the way our organisation operates, we have uh, a need to be on the road a fair bit. So in the days, remember those days, Paul, where you could actually use that funny thing called a passport and go overseas? <laughs> well, they, they seem like a long way away, but but really um, we generally spend quite a bit of time with the chair of the board. And it gives a chance to build some good social capital um, and genuine capital with a board chair and realising that, you know, whether it's, you know, issues that are taking place in your personal situation or issues that are taking place professionally that you've got someone to talk to. Um, yes. And so that's really important for me. But I, um, yeah, I, I think we, you know, we, I've worked with some wonderful people, some former colleagues that I'll generally catch up with and certainly other CEO colleagues that have more experience than I am just to say, look, how have you managed this situation or what's some advice you'd give? So, yeah, I, I, I think it's really important to have that sounding board because, when you do become a CEO, you're sort of sitting, sitting there and going, well, I've got to make the call. I'll be accountable for the decision. But it, it, you don't really have the benefit of, of workshopping every single decision. Yes. Um, so so I, I think it's really important to have that frame of reference by way of uh, you know, some, some good counsel to go to and say, look, what do you think? And I suppose chief amongst those is, uh, is, is family. And, uh, you know, my wife's a wonderful support. Yeah, brilliant. Well said. Well said. And I think that the the ability to have that sounding board, you're right. People think you've got all the answers, but sometimes you don't. So the ability to bounce ideas, thoughts, uh, processes through someone, I think, is so important. So that's a that's a that's a good little golden nugget for everyone listening. Yeah, and I think um, you know, given the space we're in, I mean, we could be going from. I think it's really helpful. But we could go from a discussion with our. Um, I could go with Vicky, who heads up our technical area, and we'd be up in Canberra and and doing a um, a walk around, catch up with a treasurer, or or, or have a discussion with um, uh, you know a prime minister or whatever the case may be. And then I, you know, get home sort of full of myself, thinking how wonderful the day's been. I come inside and and you know it's time for the kids to do homework and it's just a great level <laughs> to say, righto, you know, fantastic. You know, I'm glad you had a good day, but 
there's some you know back to, back to earth sort of approach. Um, but some of the work we do, you know, given the the, the detail, some legislative changes that come down the line, we get ourselves right involved with the design of all that. Um, you've got to be really on your game, and and on your game in our space is not just having the technical knowledge, but also being plugged into what members' views are most importantly. Because I've had experiences before where you know, a federal budget's handed down and we will issue a statement and say this is a good initiative. And within about five minutes, uh, you'll have members on the phone saying, hey, listen, you might have got the wrong angle there. And, and so having member insights is really important. So mm. you, you've really got to be switched on and, and have the ability to, uh, to synthesise really, really quickly. Yeah, fantastic. Now, you are talking about passports before, so it's a <laughs> nice little segue into this one because you're right, we may not be able to travel till... 2023 but um you know you've also been into all sorts of different international events apex the g20s uh world trade organization summits what were those experiences like and how did you even prepare for that i think you represented australia at a couple of those did you not yeah i did so we had uh, a, a range of meetings that took place around certainly the, the g20 were quite interesting looking at the fallout after the global financial crisis in terms of what um, the profession's role was in, in terms of the the, the G20 and, and achieving sort of financial stability. Uh, that was quite interesting. And also the World Trade Organization where uh, well, I presented on behalf of the Australian profession about the way in which Australia structures the accounting profession because the WTO at that stage were renegotiating a, a new general agreement on trade in services and they wanted to know how did Australia actually uh, do accounting <laughs> when it came to the profession. Um, right. So when it came to sort of preparation, it was really around, uh, again, gathering insights from uh, members, but also stakeholders in Australia from regulators and so forth, and just, you know, pulling that together to present um, the Australian perspective. And, and, and really interestingly, in the accounting profession, sometimes you get caught up in how difficult things might be to deal with, you know, uh, navigate stimulus measures in Australia, deal with the ATO, or the portals down, or you know, whatever the case may be. We always have a, a, an issue that we're dealing with in financial services or broader regulation in Australia. But when we zoom out from that and say, well, how is Australia positioned globally? Actually, it's really well positioned in terms of the way the profession is structured, the way uh, we're regulated. Uh, by global standards, Australia does box well above its weight. And in fact, in most of the international groups, whether it's the WTO, the G20, the International Federation of Accountants, the standard setters, Australia has, I would say, a disproportionate representation um, at those tables. So um, if you think about the, the overarching standard setter uh, based in London, the International Financial Reporting Standards Foundation and the trustees, um, well, Lee White, who was the former CEO of Charters, uh, is the executive director there. Number of Australians involved in the technical teams, members of the board. So uh, Australia is really well represented on the global stage. And so, you know, we, we can get ourselves wrapped up in how difficult life can be in our profession. But when we actually look at a in a global context, we're really well placed. Yeah, it's good to hear, isn't it? Because you, you don't, it's, it's very rare that you hear those sorts of things. So I suppose... Yeah, to all of our listeners as well, this is fantastic because I suppose you, you may not actually be aware of that and the representation we have and where we sit with that. Um, so it's, it's pretty cool to hear that from an Australian point of view, a little island tucked in the middle of nowhere, that that can actually take place, which is awesome to hear. 
Well, we've, yeah, that's right. We've, we've also, um, you know, it's we look at the standard setting process. It's very hard to try and explain to a sole practitioner working from home in Wollongong, like how the, the work of the International Accounting Standards Board in London affects uh, individual practitioners. But so what yes. we what we often do is try and explain why our involvement in these things are, you know is important because it's if we think about accounting standards and we all love them Paul we, we love standards <laughs> um, but, <laughs> but really you know our, our profession runs on them which is really important for comparability but they they get written and considered in detail at the international level so so London if you like that is where they get they'll get issued and then through global adoption the Australian accounting standards board the auditing assurance standards board in Australia will then consider them and then apply them in Australia. So our view is, of course, you're far better having influence upstream um, in the development of those standards before they actually make their way onshore. And then the the Australian standard setters consider them for the Australian context. So, and there's a lot of change taking place there at the moment, which is plenty of fodder perhaps for future podcasts or future discussions. Yeah, because, yeah. You know, there's this convergence around um, integrated reporting together with sustainability reporting. And, and so there's this new construct being the, the value reporting framework, which has been developed, um, which is, uh, you know, very, very quickly emerging as a new reporting framework. So um, plenty of stuff going on that radar. But yeah, we, tr we try and influence it upstream as much as we can. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic. Now, um I think it was in 2011, maybe, you are awarded Young Professional of the Year. Um, mate, how did that project your, call it your personal brand to what you were achieving 10 years later? Yeah, look, it was a, it was a nice uh, recognition in a sense through Professions Australia and I'm um, very appreciative of that. And I, I think it was just um, almost like a validation that, yeah, you know, sort of on the right track in, in a sense. So... Uh, so that was quite helpful, and it was um, it was nice actually. The board, uh, my, my board, actually nominated uh, me for that, which was really good. And then, if we sort of fast forward, sort of ten years on, it was uh, it, it's it's been um, helpful in terms of reminding us it's a process of continual learning. So I've tried to add a range of um, strings to the bow as the the years have unfolded. So um, you know, reinforced the the role with with academia, and, and importantly also. Um, uh, looking at other fields, for example, um, AI that I've, I've, I've just secured a, a qual in. So, so it's that's focus on continual education and and um, and and sort of reinvention in a way, and sort of leverage after I got that award. I remember the the um, the president, I think, of Professions Australia had a conversation with, and, and he said, "Oh, one of the important things is for any business is to almost." shake itself down every 18 months to two years and, and make sure that it, it does have refined purpose, refined focus. And I think I've, I've tried to really apply that wisdom and, and that is to, 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 to keep shaking the business down to, to see where we, you know, could improve. And, and, and I think that's been a really important um, lesson out of that. So it's been, yeah, it, it's been a, was quite an important um, uh, milestone from a development point of view. Yeah. Fantastic. I look, I, I suppose, you, you know, you look at that, I suppose, three years later or maybe four years later, you're also announced as the AFR Bosses Magazine's Young Executive of the Year. Um, maybe maybe share with our listeners uh, 
what drives you to become the person you want to be? You know, you mentioned you know, 28 being a CEO and you said you're always been in your mid 40s. You still sound very young, which is fantastic. <laughs> your education is important. Continued learning is important. How you represent Australia at these international areas is so important. Um, what drives you? Family. Um, put simply, Paul, I mean, I, I um, you know, for, for me, it's the most important thing in our family. And, and we, we practice that from an IPA staff point of view as well. And that is that um, if someone turns up at work and has a family issue going on, they'll be quickly sent, you know, turned around to say, go and sort it, you know, because that's, that is and will always be the most important thing. Um, so we do really focus on that. It's a family first approach. Um, and, and that's the driver for us is that everything that Amanda and I do is to try and make our kids' lives better and um, we, we strive for that. Um, and then, in, in, you know, the, the Boss Magazine piece was important in terms of um, it, it provided an opportunity to really sort of stress test certain concepts that you sort of apply naturally and say, look, because the, the process they put you through is a is a simulation that that DDI Global run. Some some of your listeners might be familiar with. They um, you, you're literally taken to a, a fictitious workplace. You're given a fictitious role, and then you're put in a whole range of simulated events and scenarios, and and you're monitored the whole day, and and then you get a, a, a psychometric analysis of your performance the next day. So it's it was quite an intense process to go through, and it was pretty revealing around where you have strengths and some opportunities to improve. So that was quite uh, quite important. But but that that sense of motivation of, of what we do um, is all about people and, and the way we interact with people. Um, and, and so that uh, boss process was quite important from a validation point of view as well to say, yep, again, on the right track. Um, but, you know, coming back to the original point I was making is that, is that all of that is about how do we um, ensure that our family has the best possibility and best best opportunity for the future so so that's that's really what motivates um me yeah and it sounds like you've 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 invested in yourself as well from a learning point of view you know you mentioned the um the ai qual before so just you know the yeah. artificial, artificial intelligence just to again just another qualification to add oh look i think it was it was also just about recognizing that this uh, this is impacting our profession quite profoundly and so the uh, you know, embarking on that course was more about just just building greater bench strength around us. So I'm going to talk about it, and if we're going to design strategies to support members, I'd probably better know a little about it. And so, yes. uh, in fact, the chair of our board did it with me at the same time, um, which in theory was a good thing to do. Um, I'm not sure what, what he found about that, <laughs> whether it was, you know, whether he found the same thing, but but it was a really good process to go through. It was a good indication of a board who just says, yeah, we're willing to step up and actually uh, build some knowledge around this uh, emerging field. The challenge is, of course, in AI, that the literature is so underdeveloped and there's very little empirical evidence to support a lot of the education So, because uh, it's evolving so rapidly. So it was really important just to open our own minds to the opportunities for the profession, and I'm convinced there are some in immense opportunities for us to to grapple in uh, well now and also in the years to come yeah brilliant brilliant so mate um the day in the life of andrew conway um do you have any daily rituals anything you'd like to share oh look i um it, one of the things i try and commit to is um is moving and 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 uh and i i uh i a little while ago i did a 
my my back rather severely and had a quite a severe back injury and um uh and so just getting back to sort of walking um yeah keeping weight off and all those sort of things are really important to me and so um i, I still to this day will, will try and commit to uh, you know at, at lunchtime going for a, a, a decent walk and and actually just stretching out and um and clearing out the cobwebs uh and you know just maintaining a well maintaining a medium level of fitness i'd say um so that that's really important to me just in terms of um well-being and uh so that's that's probably the the ritual and then um you know i uh, in my commute to and from one of the things i am very passionate about and love is is music so uh, i'll generally have uh, the music going in the car and um uh, have have been known to be one of those weird people sitting in traffic singing along. So um, if, you, if, if you see some weird guy next to you in, in, in traffic um, uh, belting out some sort of song, it's probably going to be me. <laughs> any any sort of music you'd like to share? Any, any uh, oh, look, pretty eclectic. In fact, Amanda and I met um, pretty much through music. She was involved in producing shows, and I got involved in. Um, I originally my my instrument that I learned actually when I was uh, studying it was was the alto sax, and um, ah. but but yeah, I got got involved in um, uh, producing music and directing music and things. So now a very very wide range of music. So probably almost too wide, I'd say. Um, <laughs> but so any sort of Spotify playlist is going to have quite a few. Uh, <laughs> it's quite generic and quite uh, quite eclectic. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Now coming back to the IPA for a minute, you mentioned just before from a global perspective that was really important. Um, what does the future of the IPA look like? Obviously, you got forty two thousand members and students. Um, yep. You mentioned quite a, a broad range of things. You mentioned the global side. What does this mean for the future of the IPA? Well, I think it's positive. I think it's, I mean, it's it, we can't take it for granted and we certainly don't take um, our member support for granted. Um, but we're very optimistic about our growth uh, prospects. Um, you know, we continue to grow very, very well. Our retention rates, which are always a, a strong indica indicator of member support, are still very, very high by industry standards. And that's a good sign. Um, but I, you know, I, I think the prospects are looking very positive. We've continually continually invested in our education courses. Our education program now, the IPA program now culminates in the award of a of an MBA for those members who are interested in in going in that path. So, so we're very um, optimistic. Uh, but equally, Paul, we're very clear on member uh, feedback. And I often say to members that if you get your fee renewal notice each year and you sit back and go, will I or won't I this year, then we've failed and we don't deserve your membership. And, um, and so I'm very open with members to say, you know, if you're feeling that way, to drop me a line and let me know how we can improve and give us a chance. So so we, you know, that practice of authenticity, being close to members, being aware of their insights and needs, uh, but then providing um, practical and relevant services, really what we're on about. So when you come to one of our events, you, you come to the event and you walk away with knowledge to apply um, rather than, you know, we generally don't put on events with, um, you know, sports stars talking about leadership issues. I mean, that's that's great. There's a time and a place for that, but quite often you can't go and apply that knowledge. So uh, we focus on on providing information that's that's um, that can be applied straight away in, in the member's business or practice. So, so look, yeah, we're very optimistic and, and positive about, about the direction of travel. Yeah, look, I, I love the point you've just made there in terms of your Mondays with new members. I think there's a lot of um, even sort of one of the things that I wrote down there with when we've got new clients or we've got team members or whatever it may be in terms of just allocating the, 
the space in your calendar to actually follow up those guys and make sure that that they feel that one that they're valued, two that they have a, a an avenue to voice an opinion, which is really important. So, like any business, that, that, that's so critical to make sure that you're looking after your customers. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that again, that sense of being close to members is so important. And and, and um, you know, the professional bodies are not complex businesses it's like members in practice you know it, it would be like a member in practice saying you know what i'm not going to take that call from a client or i'm going to be really hard to reach my client. i mean you wouldn't be in practice for very long and mm-hmm. with, you know i know what it's like in practice you know you pushing the trolley down woolies on a sunday afternoon you bump into a client and they'll they'll pick up the conversation where they saw you two weeks ago and saying oh because and they expect you to have immediate file recall and going well uh, and, and then if you try and uh, you know, if you go back, you go back home, and you go and fire. You don't go and fire off an invoice to them for that advice. So th- there's this sense of um, yeah, being accessible, but not 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 being that accessible that you can't get anything done. So it's a it's a bit of a balancing act. So um, yeah, you, you've got to uh, you, you've got to remain focused on the the main game. Yeah, very true, very true. And, and do you do you guys um, obviously you mentioned CPA and the CAANZ um, and yourselves? Is there in a is there any sort of collaborative approach on any of that? Do, do any of you guys get together once a year or once every five years to as, as a oh, group? Yeah. Or yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of work that goes on between the, the professional bodies and, and we do a lot of joint submissions. Like the um, the Professional Ethical Standards Board, the, the APES Board, um, we actually all jointly sponsor and, and we all contribute equally uh, to the Professional Ethical Standards Board. Um, but quite often when we make submissions, those submissions are joint submissions to, to government regulators. Um, we'll do walk-arounds in Canberra to the ministers and shadow ministers. Uh, again, that's generally done on a joint basis there's a lot of collaborative work that goes on behind the scenes uh, between the professional bodies. That doesn't mean we don't compete, um, you know, vigorously, but we we know when, you know, when we need to check the individual brands at the door and say, no, this is about the profession's best interest. Um, and so that's, uh, a, there's a pretty consistent approach to that. That's awesome to hear. That's, that's something that I wasn't aware of. So, um, and it might come to a surprise or other sort of people listening to this might go, yeah, look, I knew that, but that, that's actually really, really good to hear. Yeah. Um, mate, in, in, you know, wrapping up, I thought I want to wrap this up. It's been a good, good chat. And like I said before, I enjoy our chats. So what, what sort of advice could you provide to, you know, leaders coming through the ranks or maybe it's an existing leader of a firm or a business? What's a piece of advice that you can actually provide them? I think that piece around being very clear on, um, what you value um, and your your ethical lens ar- around you know how you individually operate. Um, I think being aware of that, so developing a sense of emotional intelligence about how you work, how you operate, and how you interact with others is really important first and foremost. Then really striving for that accessibility and and authenticity. So um, being clearly authentic with your team and and your customers, your clients, your members. In our case. Um, and then making sure that as you make decisions and as you, you you sort of run and operate a business, that you do so with a view as to what the ultimate social purpose is of your work. And I think that provides a really important anchor point for any person in business that we all have a social purpose uh, and making sure you understand that and resource that is just really important. So those three aspects, I think, would be, uh, to me, what I would uh, uh, encourage anyone who's striving to run or lead a business to to do. 
Brilliant. I love the, you know, the thought process there on the ethical lens and um, what a great way to wrap up. Um, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're going to be uh, joining us on our Chewing Your Canning Fat show in July as well. And we're going to delve a little bit more into, you know, the sustainability of the accounting industry. I think there's three key areas that 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 you that we will quiz you on that you will talk about as well, which is around recovery, resilience and re-imaging from memory. Yeah. Um, we can talk about Uprise as well on there. And so there's, so again, to all of you that are listening and we've got a lot of loyal listeners on Talking Numbers, please make sure you look out for that invitation and join us. I think it's late July, J- July 22, maybe, um, for our Chewing the Accounting Fat show where Andrew is going to be joining us live on the sofa in our studio. So Andrew Conway, thank you very much, mate. Again, it's, it's always great to chat to people with just doing great things in our industry and all of our listeners always give me feedback as well to the sorts of topics we bring out, the, the, the speakers that we have on here. So it's been a pleasure chatting to you over the last 35 minutes or so. Good on you, Paul. Thanks very much. And thanks for your work in raising the awareness around uh, these conversations in the profession and uh, love the work. So looking forward to catching up soon. Thanks, mate. Have a great day. You too. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks again for joining us to listening to our Talking Numbers podcast. Um, We've got plenty of several big name guests to come. And obviously, if you've liked anything you've heard, please go back. Please like it. Please share it. Please comment on it. Um, And more importantly, if you like what we're doing, please make sure you check us out on LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, Instagram, all our different socials, The Professional Partners, and you'll find us there. Thanks for listening.